There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My partner and I might talk about where to live. And I might actually not, maybe on my like number one priority, want to live where she wants to live. But in service of the connection and the possibility that might be garnered by one place versus another, I might not feel like my my number one need was met in that space, but I can recognize that the movement together is actually smarter and I'm willing to do that in service of the sacred connection of the relationship. Hello and welcome to the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that explores the mind, soul, science and health as we speak with world leading experts each week. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur and happiness researcher. Life is not straightforward, so join me as we navigate being human together and become what I like to call flexible thinkers. I believe that curiosity and education is the route for more happiness, love, connectedness and the doorway to unlocking your unlimited potential. I hope you join me on the journey. Wow, on today's episode, I have the one and only Mark Groves, who is a world-leading human specialist who helps you to nurture better relationships with others and yourself. Mark is the founder of the world's first social-emotional network, Mind, that provides daily live on-demand emotional wellness sessions. It's truly a phenomenal platform. Every single day, you can listen to an expert that takes you through classes on codependency, to self-worth, to navigating self-trust, to evolving more confidence in relationships. Many people will know Mark through Instagram, through his Create the Love account with over a million followers. Mark hosts online courses to help you move past codependency, rediscover your wholeness, become a boundaries badass, and heal and recover from heartache. He also can connect you to individual therapists and coaches who can help you with your relationships. Mark is a living light bulb, shining and helping millions of people around the world find the love they want for themselves and for others. What's a favorite quote you like to return to often and why? Okay, there's a quote from Adi Ashanti that my sister sent me actually when I was going through a breakup. And I, I felt like everything that I knew was sort of melting away. And the quote is, enlightenment is a destructive process. It has nothing to do with becoming better or being happy. Enlightenment is the crumbling away of untruth. It's seeing through the facade of pretense. It's the complete eradication of everything we imagine to be true. I come back to that one often because I find that the paradigms of what I believe get shattered all the time. What I thought about myself, what I thought about how the world works. I mean, that has been deconstructed over and over again. And it just reminds me of the process of life is filled with death and rebirth. And it's just good to be humbly reminded of that always. Absolutely. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? You know, I've been experiencing a large transformation in what I want to do in the world and what I want to talk about and what's important to me. And 
I used to be a pharmaceutical rep in my previous mark, I don't know, 2.0, let's call him. And when I left that work and started writing about relationships, I was terrified. And I sort of feel like I'm in a similar transition of just being reminded to that sometimes the dream you have is not the dream you currently have. And sometimes what your soul wants to bring into the world is not what your soul wanted to bring into the world. And sometimes what you thought was your purpose gets reassigned. And I remember sitting beside a river uh, a couple years ago when my life was sort of <laughs> my relationship had ended and, you know, everything was getting shattered, much like that quote. And I remember just sitting by this river meditating and hearing, at what moment did you think you were God? How did you believe that you could choose the path as opposed to walk it? And I think there's this balance in there, of course, obviously we have choice. But the other side was that I was trying to force things that didn't want to fit. And that lesson just keeps coming forward to me. And, you know, I hope that now will be the time that I accept it as just the way of being, <laughs> because doing anything else causes too much stress. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. How do you understand the soul? I believe the soul, at least in my experience, is trying to bring through me my highest possible potential and expression. The experiences, much like love, that come into our lives, but even conflict and what's going on in the world, are all trying to develop us into the best possible version we could be, the most empathic, the most boundaried. And so we can be at least of whatever great service we can be on this planet and whatever that even means. So I do, what I do know is that when I'm in alignment with my highest level of integrity and living in my highest possibility, there's a flow to life that is so different to when I'm trying to swim upstream, as Abraham Hicks would say, or trying to push a big rock up a big hill. And I think so many of us are so used to watching that. And then, I mean, really what are markets and materialism fueled from? They're fueled from our disconnection from ourselves. And so I think I understand the soul is at least attempting to be in integrity with my highest potential. I want to head straight into your work because it is so deeply fascinating and you have obviously one of the best emotional wellness platforms out there and you recently launched a course about being liberated in love and I thought this was such a great title. What does it mean to be liberated in love and why do you think so many people are not? Yeah, you know, the journey of being liberated in love is, I would say, a newer experience for me. And my partner, my fiance Kylie, we have a, what we call relationship 1.0 and relationship 2.0. And relationship 1.0 had to end. Um, and it had to end because the versions of us that were in that relationship were still hooking in in codependent ways. You know, and I'll speak first to why is it so hard to experience liberation in relationship? I think what's fascinating about the cultural narratives around relationship is one that if they and were considered a failure as opposed to perhaps a success. You know, what a beautiful thing to think that someone can let go of something that no longer serves them, the other person. And if it's not for you, it's not for them. I mean, that's just a fact. It's kind of odd that we think that someone is our person when the other person doesn't choose us when we think, well, shouldn't our person choose us too? Like that's such a simple understanding of how relating should work. They might be the one who teaches us that. And so many of us, when we observe other people's relationships, you see that the relationship is actually not the place that they are their best self, that, 
It is not the place that has given birth to their dreams or their potential or their possibility. It's actually often the place that they shrink or lose their voice or lose their autonomy or lose their sovereignty or lose something. And it's not to mean that relationships don't require compromise, but the difference between compromise and self-abandonment is compromise in and of itself is expansive. I might forego something for a connection or an experience. Maybe I might forego moving to a different city or something like that. And I can be sad about that, but I know that the decision itself is expansive to whatever I'm created in the sacred connection with my partner. And self-abandonment feels very different. It has an emptiness to it, a hollowness to it. Because really, when you think about what self-abandonment really is, it's leaving ourselves, leaving ourselves in a state that's not safe or in an agreement that isn't actually true to ourselves. And so you're not actually present fully in your life's experience when you self-abandon. You're physically there, but your soul must leave. And I think of that often, of that what we observe in relationship, you know, because I think biologically we have to look at why did humans develop codependency? Well, you know, it's important when you look historically, Gabor Mate talks about this, that humans have two needs. We have the need for self-expression and authenticity, and we have the need for belonging. But when self-expression and authenticity threaten belonging, belonging usually wins, which basically means I'm willing to trade who I am to be in this group. And evolutionarily, that's actually a really important skill set because that's what keeps us in the band, the tribe, the group. And if we didn't do that, we would have likely died. You know, I was listening to a speaker, I can't remember his name the other day, but he was talking about how essentially what we're looking at is the decentralization of everything, money, power, news, but also the decentralization of self, which I thought was really kind of interesting. Like, because when you're part of a group and you adopt the values and collective norms of that group, and you might believe in some of them, but often we believe in most of them in order to fit in. And so when you actually start to establish an authentic self, an authentic need, an authentic, whatever it might be, voice, at the cost of belonging, you're actually decentralizing yourself. Does that, and maybe this is me jumping to the negative too soon, which I'm aware of, but does that also present hyper-individualization and separation, which mm. can potentially not be in service of us being our greatest expression? Yeah, what a great question and an important one because ultimately when you look at how societies operate, they can be ranked on their sort of individuation versus their collectivism, right? And when we look at, let's say, the global response individually to crisis like COVID, you see that different cultures were more collectively minded, which was including the abandonment of individuality. And then there's others that are fighting for hyper individuality at the cost of potentially the group. And the real challenges is when we moralize these things, because that's often what happens. And, and when we moralize things, it's really hard to explore them. What you're speaking to, let's just take it into the more micro lens then of individual relationships, which is most relationships operate in that sort of collective mindset first. And that's what codependency is. So I'm willing to be in a relationship with you at the cost of a relationship with me. That's ultimately the abandonment of self-expression and authenticity for belonging. And that might look more like being part of a religion, being taught that there's a certain belief like divorce is bad and you should be exiled from your family for divorce or having sex 
you know, or intimacy before marriage is bad. And you adopt that belief, even though that belief's not actually authentic to your soul, authentic to yourself. And really, let's be honest, when you're taught that sex and desire are bad, but innately they're human, you actually then have to, on at least an unconscious level, start to believe that a part of you is bad. And when we do that, we start to cultivate shame, and then we can't actually be present during arousal, hence why most people in their earliest experiences actually are high or drunk in those experiences mm -hmm. because they can't be present in their bodies because they would have to believe the part of them that the bad is in the state of arousal. So all of this to say, like, at some point we have to decide, and usually it comes from the experience of illness or it comes from the experience of some sort of, let's just call it a rock bottom where we wake up to where we have self-abandoned. Well, we get invited to wake up. It doesn't mean that we do. And so really when I talk about liberated love or this idea of a decentralized self, ultimately it's that, and my dad said this to me when I was young, but I did not understand what he was saying. I was like, sure, dad. Okay, great. He was like, <laughs> the relationship is a separate organism and it must be fed and nurtured as such. And there are, and both you and your partner are separate organisms that contribute to that. So when human systems operate in that state of interdependency, where there still is a need for other, and there still is a moving together, honoring the sacred space that exists between you and around you, but you're also, the space itself honors the individual too. So there's this balance, you know, like my partner and I might talk about where to live. And I might actually not, maybe on my like number one priority, want to live where she wants to live. But in service of the connection and the possibility that might be garnered by one place versus another, I might not feel like my, my number one need was met in that space. But I can recognize that the movement together is actually smarter. And I'm willing to do that in service of the sacred connection of the relationship. It's like, I don't always agree with my partner, you know, <laughs> and I don't actually like some of the feedback I get from her. But my job isn't to like it, it's to integrate it. You know, my job isn't to agree with her experience of every experience we share together, but it is to validate that her experience exists. And so it doesn't need to disappear to honor the relationship, if that makes sense. Makes complete sense. And this lends itself to why do we develop a fear of commitment when we were evolved to, as you say, potentially have these codependent relationships in order to protect our survival? But yet, and I certainly fall into this category, there is a fear of the relationship. Well, having experienced that myself, <laughs> I had to explore it as well. You know, I used to think that, you know, and I think this is part of the evolution of one's self and work is that I used to think that we didn't receive or accept love because we didn't believe we were worthy of it. And I think on some level that can be true, that there's an internal belief that I'm just not worthy of what I'm receiving. But I think what it actually is below that, and that might draw us to not be attracted to good people or to run from good people or to sabotage relationships with good people in a more scientific framework we would be referencing attachment theory and attachment theory really is about all of us have an attachment system and our attachment system is essentially constantly looking for the safety and security of all our relationships, regardless if they're romantic or not. And the frameworks for what we experienced come from our primary caregivers, usually our mom. And so as adults, 
our attachment system is very similar to how it was as a kid. But what is important to know is that you can change how you attach. And so in attachment, the way that, and just to give people more of a simple framework of how this looks, the studies were originally from looking at a mom interacting with a toddler and the mom would leave the room and mom would come back and they would look at how the toddler interacted with mom. So the first one, mom leaves the room, she comes back, baby's crying, reunites with mom, and then doesn't leave mom's side. So essentially, I don't trust that when you'll leave, you'll come back. And that would be more anxious attachment. Second one, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like, hey, what's up, mom? Connects with mom, then goes back to playing. That would be secure attachment. I trust that when you leave, you'll come back. Third one, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like, didn't even notice you were gone. Like, whatever, mom, like kind of nonchalant, ambivalent. But physiologically, that baby's body is actually responding like the anxious one. It's just expressing differently. So it's expressing as disassociation or as like not caring. But there's actually a lack of trust in that relationship. And that's called avoidance. So what we're talking about, like being afraid of commitment or connection or relationship or closeness would be more avoidance. And if you think about it, for someone listening, they might be like, oh, well, sometimes I can freak out and get a little anxious and like want to cling. And then I, when I get them or they tell me they like me, I'm like, mm, bye, and I run. And that's because it's easy to switch between insecure attachment styles. So, you know, if you think about it, if you've got secure attachment and then you've got insecure attachment, which would be anxious and avoidant, it's easy to switch between those two than to go and become secure. And really the, what does it look like to actually be secure? It's that your partner's needs matter as much as your, your, your own, not more than your own, which would be more anxious attachment style and not less than your own, which would be more avoidant attachment style. But if you really look at what that is, is that when dealing with relational insecurity, one of the people, the anxious person manages that insecurity by removing space. The avoidant person manages the insecurity by creating space. And so you can imagine that an anxious person probably is very attracted to an avoidant person and an avoidant person probably likes the possibility of an anxious person, but then has to run from them because there's no space. So it's kind of crazy when you think about that because they usually merge or find each other because they trigger each other, which ultimately is inviting their healing. I say all of this to just give a framework for people and then come back to that really what I've discovered or learned is that it's not that we don't believe we're worthy of love or commitment or closeness. It's that we don't trust it. Like we just don't trust that when I am close to someone, I'll trust that they won't hurt me, that I'll have my back when I'm in relationship to them, that I won't lose myself, that I won't be consumed by their needs, their wants, their life, that I won't be consumed by having to take care of their feelings or that they won't hurt me, abuse me, right? So it's really that we don't trust love and or trust ourselves. And so really the way that all of us, including an anxious person who might not trust space, resolve this is we actually have to become hyper-conscious of our own patterns and then build the skills like boundaries and expression to be able to make sure that ultimately we can trust ourselves as we get close to people. I know you have a lot of courses. Which one in particular would you advise people to check out, especially if they're really 
wanting to change their pattern, wanting to explore attachment styles, developing a secure attachment style, where would you send them? Because I'm very aware of these conversations being had on social media and, you know, you see these random squares from lots of different people popping up. And yet it's like, how? Where's the change? How does that happen? Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be dreaming? Because ultimately for an anxious person, the solution is to learn how to fall in love with space, which is really fall in love with the self. And for an avoidant person, it's learning how to fall in love with closeness. But those strategies are really important to have as kids because they save us from hurt. You know, all of our patterns in relationship, even if they're toxic, are strategically there to protect us. And I think that's why we always have to have a compassionate lens to anything, even if we have language that's not kind, even if we have strategies like cheating or lying or sabotaging. And I think that's important to recognize is often we misconstrue being compassionate for where something comes from with being tolerant for it. Mm. And we shouldn't be tolerant of those things in our lives and also in ourselves because they ultimately get in the way of the thing we're really trying to get, which is love and closeness and intimacy. If you're looking to really heal attachment, I created a course with Sylvie Kokashian called Attachment 101, and it's all about attachment and how to heal it. I created a course with Terry Cole on codependency. There are different frameworks of how looking at things. They're both incredible teachers. Like You really can't go wrong with either of them. Codependency is really like the disease to please, they would call it. It's very much people-pleasing. It's very much self-abandonment. It's more prevalent in women, and that's not because women suffer from these types of ailments more. It's because women have been socialized to self-abandon much more than men have. Women have been socialized to take care of everyone at the cost of themselves. It's not to mean that men haven't, but usually men are the one that women are taught to accommodate and sort of navigate around or be on eggshells around. I have a shorter one that's just about boundaries called Becoming a Boundaries Badass. But I think if you're looking at attachment or codependency, either of those courses are really great. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've been really excited to ask you about this question in particular, because I see this advice everywhere. And the advice is, write a wish list for everything you want in a future partner. And maybe people use the word manifest, manifest your future partner. Right. Does this not turn people into huge perfectionists? And I say this because, and I'll use myself as an example, I was single for years because I had this vision board of my perfect 
guy that I wanted to inverted commas manifest and honestly had I stuck to that board I don't think I would have kissed anyone in the last like (laughs) 12 years well I think it can serve a few purposes I mean I definitely get you if you're someone who's prone to perfectionism uh, creating a list of Mr. or Mrs. Perfect or the perfect person is probably not great. And perfectionism as a strategy is really about finally trying to be enough. But everyone knows the curse of the perfectionist is as soon as you achieve anything, you just come up with another fucking thing so that you're not enough again. So it's kind of like learning to live in our in our imperfections. That list, I love that you said you probably wouldn't have kissed anyone in 12 years. Yeah, because sometimes our lists are actually walls. You know, sometimes the standards that we keep or hold are actually barriers. And and so I think it's just important that we check in with ourselves. And I think this is that you asked that question about the relationship to soul. This is where we actually start to return back to our intuition. And because you'll you'll get to have a better relationship with your intuition when you begin to build boundaries around yourself because you'll have more space to be who you are, to be, a de- you know, I'd work with people where I'm like, what do you, what do you want? What do you need? And they're like, I don't know. And it's because they, no one's ever even given them the space to figure that out. And their lives were based on other people's needs. So the first is just this simple check-in. Are my standards actually a way of keeping people away? Is my list actually a way of keeping people away? And you'll get the answer. You might not like it, but that doesn't mean it's not the right answer. I always think of Carolyn Mace where she says, we ask for guidance from God and then we get it and we pretend that we don't hear it because we didn't like what we heard. (laughs) So in the context of uh, the list, if I ask someone, what are you looking for in a relationship? And they say, I don't know. I just go with the flow. First off, I'm like, that's total bullshit. You do want something. Like you're looking for something. But you might be afraid to say what it is because you might be afraid to be disappointed that you won't find it. And you you might be already preparing yourself for disappointment. But you actually have to go into the relating process being very clear what you're looking for. It doesn't mean you can't be like, hey, I want to have a casual relationship for the meantime. And then maybe there'll be a point where you want to shift it. But I think anyone who's been in a casual relationship knows how hard it is to actually shift that. And when they look back, they can see that they only said that so that they didn't ask for too much. And when you get clear on what you're looking for, then you'll be looking for it. When you don't get clear on what you're looking for, you'll accept anything and try to make it fit. You'll try to accommodate their desires. And so the list itself can serve But it has to be like, you know, there's a difference between a desire like the guy is 6'2 and named a certain name or has a certain, you know, like, and has magical pectorals and an APAC. There's a difference between that and and that being like a desire versus a deal breaker. Deal breakers are things you don't negotiate on. When we can just get clear on what are the most important things we want in a partner. Listen, when you look at the research and people look back at their lives the two most important qualities in a partner are kindness and respect. And so, you know, are you willing to trade those for anything else? I would say you shouldn't be. You might be, but that would only be because you were taught to do that. But when you look back upon your life, do you want the person who's 6'2", which, hey, not to say that's not great. And if you're 6'2", awesome. But it's to really say, do you have your priorities straight? Because most of us will abandon a really important Uh, quality of a person for a physical attribute. 
which is interesting. And again, that's where we have to sort of like separate. I'm not saying don't desire the person. Obviously, we're humans. We're biological. You got to desire the person you're in relationship with. But if you've always been aroused by or drawn to unavailable people or chaotic people, I think there's a good argument to be made that your desire is actually drawing you to learn how to not say yes to everything that your loins tingle for, you know, <laughs> that you have choice between what you're drawn to and what you choose. Wow. So much nuance, so much wisdom. And it brings me on to talk about this idea of love and how love is actually such a deeply confusing word because you talk about this a lot in your content around how Disney lied to us. It lied <laughs> yeah. to us in many ways. But what I guess my question is, how do you know you're in love? Because we got told love is this kind of like, I can't breathe, I'm so excited, like fireworks. And yet, actually, maybe there's different expressions of love, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is love. And actually, perhaps I haven't experienced it yet. So how do you know if you're in love? Well, God, what a beautiful question to explore, even when you believe you are. You know, like, how do you know? You know, when we check in as like, what were the moments that we felt the most calm in company of someone? Like, felt like we could really be ourselves, this sort of exhale. If we look sort of historically and where Disney lied to us is that in a lot of ways that it should, you know, and rom-coms have totally lied to us. One of them that really told a beautiful truth was The Notebook, you know, and I think that's why everyone loves The Notebook because it speaks to the humanity, the aging, the process of unconditional love, presence. I mean, I think that's what we ultimately all want. Now, their story had some, you know, rebellion, sort of Romeo and Juliet kind of stuff going on too, which, again, we love the idea of being fought for. Where Disney really lied to us is that there's this idea that one person needs to be saved and the other person is saving, which you think about it, a lot of that is the framework of in heteronormative relationships, the man and the woman that the man is supposed to come in on horseback and save this woman who's needs saving. But as soon as you identify as someone who needs saving or needs work, then when are you ever complete? Not to say that you're ever done doing the work, but if keeping your partner, who is the person who solves your problems or is helping you heal, means that you have to maintain a identity of being unhealed or always a work in progress, it requires both people to step into roles that are not really very sacred, individualistic kind of roles. How do we know we're in love? Well, gosh, we need to first look at what were we taught about love? You know, what were we taught about it? So many of us unconsciously believe love leads to lying, cheating, divorce, exile from our community, that love is chaotic and unreliable, that our parents weren't there for us. And then we wonder why there's a familiarity in our nervous system when we're around people who are like that. And then we say that's love. And so I think there's this part of really getting to know the nervous system that's important and getting to know one's bodily response to reliability, you know, because as I said, when you look at the attachment system, it's constantly saying, is this relationship safe and secure? Am I providing a space that's safe and secure? And sometimes we're not. And we're drawn to that. We might find that super sexy. And then what happens is that unreliability, especially if we're intimate with the person who's unreliable or doesn't choose us or constantly abandons us, we'll treat the pain of the rejection and the abandonment with arousal, so much like a drug. 
getting to know love, I mean, who am I to be able to define it? I would say that in my experience, I always come back to that idea of being fully in alignment with my own personal highest potential. Because how can I exhale if I'm myself sort of constricted with my own shame that I'm not living at my highest level of wisdom and knowledge? And the other side of that is, have I created a space with my partner, or even when I'm in the early dating process, where I honor the truth over everything? I mean, I think that's what liberated love really is, is this honoring of the truth, even at the cost of it fracturing a relationship. The irony that any truth that fractures a relationship invites it to broaden, to expand, to get deeper, and much like any expansion requires cracking, right? Like that's just how the universe works. That's how growth works. That's how we work. That can be so important in the early dating process is just like, this is what I'm looking for. That, like if you don't say what you're actually looking for or how you actually feel, you're actually not honoring the sacredness of the connection you're building and you're not honoring the self. So I think at least I'm going to always say in my own experience, I think love feels like an exhale. I think that it feels like a job that you get offered that requires more of you and you might not know exactly how to do it, but you know you can't say no to it. That's the way I sort of think of it. And I think of some of my earliest relational experiences, this idea of butterflies. I don't know. I think there was just a knowing. Even if the relationship was the wrong choice, it still was the right choice because it serves us in a way of understanding our blind spots. And so love teaches us. It's the ultimate classroom. It's Till we're aware of that, it will unconsciously bring us to the places where it will wake us up to beginning to ask questions like, how do I know that I'm in love? Or how do I know if this person is the one? And even is the one even a healthy perspective? Um, I would argue it isn't. But they might be the one that brings you to a space of possibility for yourself first. And gosh, if that's not why we're here, I don't know what it is. Out of all the work you teach, what usually do you find clicks the most for people that kind of like drop? Yeah, you know, I think (laughs) there's probably a few. I think the one that I see as the ultimate gateway is heartbreak. I don't think people realize how potent and powerful of a doorway heartbreak is. Whenever anyone's going through a breakup, I never try to save them from the potency of that experience because... I know for me that heartbreak has always been one of the most rapid spaces, superhighway to myself, to my possibilities, to accessing the beauty of grief. Oh my God, I, I don't know that there's also a more potent transformative emotion than grief. It roots you, it demands that you feel things. It's it's so beautiful and you won't save people from that feeling when you recognize the value of the feeling yourself. And so I think that's, One where my work was really born from me feeling exiled for breaking up with someone, me feeling like society wants me to feel like a failure ending this engagement, and yet I've never felt more connected to myself. Like That was a really interesting paradox that was painful to live in, but there was something so powerful in it, and I was angry that somehow I was supposed to be ashamed of myself for choosing myself. And how that was in conflict with what I was taught about being a man and that I was just afraid of commitment was what I was, you know, men are afraid of commitment, blah, blah. So I think that's one where I see people really get this level of being witnessed and accepted for the choices they're making and actually that they potentially 
are becoming in some ways sort of like superhuman and super open from the doorway of feeling exiled by maybe their family, their friends, their partner. And whether they leave you or you leave them, there is always such a beautiful space left in the emptiness that we fill with people. And then I think the second one is when people finally embrace this perspective on relating that they are choosing a relationship rather than waiting to be chosen. It's such a pivot. You know, most of us are like waiting for someone to match with us as opposed to really being discerning and saying, is this person a match for me? And, you know, coming back to that idea of the one is like, instead of just giving someone that title because you have a feeling, imagine if as an adult, you explored the connection and decided if they were worthy of it. I mean, that's such a different way of being. And I, I think last, but certainly not least, is just shifting the perspective of relating as being this really potent space of transformation. And and I would argue any type of relating, and that could be to food, that can be to your body, that can be to money, that can be to other humans, it could be to sex, it could be to a lot of things. They all offer an incredible gateway to self and soul. And I think the reason relationships are probably a little more important than others is the drugs don't always talk back, but sometimes they do, depending on the drug you take. Uh, but people do. And if you offer someone the opportunity to give you feedback on how you're experienced by them, you actually might be able to completely transform your life and your connections. Thank you so much. And thank you on behalf of so many millions of people. And as I said, I will put Mark's Instagram in the show notes, his courses, um, his app. And I look forward to you exploring all of that if you're listening. Thank you so much again, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. It would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating, subscribing and sharing this podcast. I also would love to hear from you. So please find me at Poppy Jamie on Instagram, DM me and I would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss. Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.